looking at chapter 8 this week, most of the 9 next week, and the latter part of chapter 10 the following week, and then the week after the election, we'll be talking about God's sovereignty. So just a heads up, if you get there that Sunday and like, eh, why'd he pick this sermon? Is he saying something about who won? No, already picked it, whoever wins. But this morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. God's word beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8 says, Now concerning concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are maybe so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. But if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. O Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. And would you come now and indwell this place and speak through your word that we might be faithful to you. Lord, these are challenging times and we want to be faithful. And so we need you to instruct us and guide us in how we should live. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we began the service by talking about God's call for us to be both people who seek peace and people who pursue purity of the church. We need to be both of those. And one way to understand how those relate to one another is to realize that issues have different levels of importance. For example, later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will write in chapter 15, these are things of first importance. And then he'll go on and tell of Jesus resurrection well if there are some things of first importance then there are at least some things of second and we can maybe even say third or fourth importance some christians have split christian teachings into three levels of importance the first level those of first importance are things that you have to believe to be a christian you can't say i'm a christian but i don't really believe jesus was the son of god well no to be a christian a core belief is Jesus' humanity and divinity, that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, that God is one in three, that he created the universe. And we could add, but these are essentials. 
we must believe them and we should fight for these. If someone in the church starts saying, I don't agree with that, we go, no, that's where we pursue purity. Second level, though, would be those truths that are good to believe. We should believe them and they're more needed for a local church. For us to function, we need to say, well, how are we going to have leaders? And as you know, churches have different views of that. But we don't say, well, they're not Christians because they don't have the same level of church government. Or who should we baptize and how should we baptize them? We have all Christian friends who think differently of that. We still say they're Christians. They're important truths. We should study them and we should say this is what we believe. And on some level, to be part of our church, you may need to hold to those. But you're not a non-Christian if you have a different view of baptism per se. A third level would be even lower than that, and that would be a level of conscience, where in a church we could even disagree. Can you as a Christian play cards? Can you go to a dance hall? Can you watch an R-rated movie? Can you drink alcohol? Now, for some of those, you might <laughs> would ever think you couldn't do that. Well, some Christians do. But in a local church, we should be able to say, we have freedom. This is important. You should think about it. You should come to what God you believe God says, but you may go to the dance hall, and I may not. But I'm not going to say, well, they're not a Christian because they went to a dance hall. And so we have these different levels of issues. And here in 1 Corinthians 8, we have a third level importance issue, one that arose in the church in Rome and the church in Corinth. That is them responding, how do you relate to food that was first offered to idols at pagan temples? And Christians in Corinth and Rome were responding differently. And in chapter 8, Paul essentially says, look, know that the idols are not really real. So you can eat the meat. But he then continues and says, though you have the freedom, if that freedom is going to harm another believer, then you should give up your freedom out of love. Then in chapter 9, he's going to give another example of a right he has in as an apostle. But he gives it up for the sake of believers and for the sake of the gospel. And then in chapter 10, he's kind of circle the wagons again and say, look, you can't just treat all this as false idols because there's demonic powers behind it. And so you need to take it seriously, but you are free to eat. But whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's where he wraps it all up. But here in chapter 8, Paul begins by giving us three important truths. And the first is that love is greater than knowledge. Verse 1, now concerning food offered idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now you have to realize that the early church clearly condemned meat sacrificed to idols. If to have it, you were in the pagan worship service. Many verses that say you should not eat that mean, but there are two unique situations in the early church and their culture that affected this. One is the pagan temples also had rooms next to the worship hall in which civic activities would happen. For example, in the, one of the pagan temples in Corinth had three rooms, and an invitation from that time reads this way. Apollonius requests you dine at the table of the Lord Serapis on the occasion of his coming of age, his birthday, of his brothers in the temple of Thorus. So if you're a Christian and you get invited to a birthday party at the side of the pagan temple, can you go? Well, they're wrestling with this. Another issue for that time was almost all meat, because so many of their surrounding friends were pagans, 
first went to the temple. A part of it would go to the god, a part of it would be given back to the worshiper, and a part would go to the meat market. So almost all meat inadvertently went through the temple. Well, if you just want meat, can you get the stuff that kind of was in the temple but wasn't given to the god? Well, that's what they're discussing here because they're going back and forth. Well, Paul will clearly say in chapter 10, verse 25, you can go purchase the meat with a clear conscience. But he's going to add these other things to it and why. And Paul begins really by challenging them by this phrase, we all have knowledge. Now that seems like a catchphrase, something that the Corinthians were saying. We have all knowledge. Kind of the know-it-all mentality. We know everything. We know that they're not even real idols. We know that. And yet Paul is challenging them because their knowledge is leading them to be arrogant, to be prideful, the, the conceit where you look down and, how do they not know that that's not real? They're so dumb. Now we have to realize here that Paul is not attacking knowledge. He gives them knowledge to correct this. Jesus says we're to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. It's good to use our brains. What Paul is attacking is not knowledge, but knowledge with the wrong purpose. What is the purpose or goal of your knowledge? If it's not to build up, then that is knowledge that is damaging. If your knowledge is used to love and edify, then that is knowledge that honors God. And Paul challenges their so-called knowledge by saying if they think they know, then in fact they're showing they don't really know. And again, the issue is their goal. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, the goal of our knowledge is, or instruction is, love from a pure heart. What is your knowledge driving you to do? And then he says something very interesting in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He's using this knowledge and love, and he now switches it and says, look, the amazing thing is if you love God, it's because he knows you. And not just he knows facts like you're, I'm six feet tall, live in Wichita Falls, and married and have four children, but he knows me personally. That he cares about me. That he sent his son to die for me. God's knowledge is personal, intimate, loving knowledge. And that's the first answer to dealing with this issue of meat sacrifice to idols is to ask, are you being driven by love for others and God? If you have any knowledge and love at all, he's saying it's because God has given it to you. So use that so that you can build up those around you. As parents, we were once teenagers. And sometimes as parents, we have teenagers. And sometimes the question is asked, well, what's wrong with it? As though if you just answer the question of right or wrong, okay, we can do it. And yet Paul is trying to push in further than that and say you have to ask more questions than is it right or wrong is doing this loving is it beneficial is it helpful and paul is challenging them yeah i think we need to pause and reflect on what paul's saying here because we like being know-it-alls we like the smug sense of vindication that the people on the other side are not just wrong they're dumb and this maybe rears our head when we Hear someone spells some theology, and you know, how could they think that? Of course, that's wrong. And it could be issues of creation or predestination or 
mode of baptism or other things. And I'm not saying those aren't important. That's not my point. But do we have this arrogant superiority to those who view it differently? This sinful pride of superiority often arises in our political discourse. It's not just that you shouldn't vote for Biden, but you're a dumb sheep if you vote for him. It's not just that you should vote Republican, but if you don't, you're a stupid Democrat. You have probably all seen the videos online where someone is out with a camera and a microphone and they go and ask people of the other party, whoever that may be, simple questions. And the people can't answer the most basic questions. Where's our capital? Uh, uh, I don't know. And then they ask them questions that should fall in line with their political beliefs, but they actually answer the questions in the way that show they should vote for the other party. And <laughs> morons, of course. Oh, that's just the other party. They're all just a bunch of sheep. They don't know what they're thinking. They've been bought hook, line, and sinker. Now, are there some people like that? Yes. But there are intelligent people of varying political views. And why are we to respond? Well, we should at times confront. We should at times disagree, but we shouldn't do it with arrogant condescension, thinking that we are morally and intellectually superior to them. Instead, we should use our knowledge to build them up gently, lovingly, ask them questions to help them see things correctly. Speak and post with loving concern, not deriding contempt. And in this, it's extremely helpful to realize that very few people think they are doing evil. I'm not saying they're not doing evil, but they really think if we could get these policies in place in our country, we will be a better country. Now, you may go, but those are really bad policies. And they may be, but most people are not going, I'm the nefarious, wicked guy. I'm the one in the movies who just laughed. <laughs> I'm going to kill our country. No, they think, hey, we should do this. And so when you talk to them, you can say, hey, I applaud your desire to make us a more loving and more just country. But let's talk about what you think is loving. Is that actually loving? Let's talk about what you think justice will be. Is that actually going to be just? And we have to realize that as we talk to people, they're not the most extreme that you're shown online or in the news. I mean, what is it that gets people to keep paying attention to cable news? Hate. It's showing the extreme of the other side because that generates viewers. Ah, I can't believe they... But then on our minds, we subtly shift and think, well, that's all of them, whoever they may be. Every Democrat hates religion. Every Democrat wants socialism, open borders, and to take away every gun. Every Republican hates homosexuals, wants crony capitalism, end all immigration, and to give everyone an AK-47. Well, those are like such extreme caricatures of both sides. It's not true. Yes, can you find people like that? Sure, but who is the person you're talking to? You may find as you talk to them, we agree a lot. How do you vote for them? And they may look at you and go, how do you vote for them? Because we agree a lot, and these ideas make me vote this way. And you go, no, those ideas should make you vote this way. But the point is, how do we view our brothers and sisters? Do we condescendingly look down on them? Our knowledge should lead us to build them up, even correct them in love. And knowledge is important because he goes to this next verses four through six that knowledge can bring freedom 
your knowledge is not bad because come from it freedom can come. Because verse 4 he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. He says, basically, look, you're going to, these people are going to the temples. They're offering these sacrifices, this meat, these drink to the idols. But are those idols real? No, because there's only one God. So it's fake. It doesn't matter. Now, he's not discounting the fact that people actually believe in these. In verse 5, he says that. He realized that people worship Zeus. They worship Ra, Baal, whatever name you want to throw in. There are countless other gods. And in chapter 10, he'll even argue that there are demonic powers behind those gods. If you read in Exodus, when Moses and Aaron do the signs and wonders in Egypt, the first few the Egyptian sorcerers could do as well. Well, why? Demonic powers behind these. And so, yes, some idols, some gods seem to be able to do stuff. They have power, but they're not actually real. They're demonic forces. And so he says, look, they don't really exist. However, Paul realizes some of them are still acting as though they do. But in contrast to all of that, verse 6, there is one God and Father. God's uniqueness contrasts to the many gods and lords in verse 5. God is not just any omnipotent being, though, though he's just an all-powerful Zeus. He is Father, he tells us. In other words, God has eternally existed in a relationship of Father and Son. And from other scriptures, we also know Spirit. In other words, God has always had a relationship of love. A relationship of love of father and son. He did not become loving once he created. God has always eternally existed as father. Well, why is that important? Because it's showing you don't need to buy the love of the father. You don't need to give this food. You don't need to give sacrifices of food to God to appease him. He is already well pleased with you through the son as he clearly expounded in Corinthians 1 and 2. And so they can come with Joyful confidence to God, knowing that the Son has made their approach to the Father. Not only that, but he's the creator of all things. Not only did he create everything, everything was made for him. Even the food and drink. And that's why he'll say in chapter 10, so whatever it is, food or drink, it's all for God's glory. So use it that way. Along with that, there is only one true Lord and Master, he tells us in verse 6 the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's interesting, the term Lord, that is the term used in the Old Testament for God, and yet Paul uses that same term for Jesus. He's clearly saying the Father is God and Jesus is God. And he'll then say that all things are through him. Wait, wait, hold on. Did God the Father create everything? Or did God the Son create everything? Well, a helpful illustration might be Consider the Air Force builds a new plane, and it's funded by the government. That's another long discussion. But consider they build a new plane. You could say the Air Force built a new plane. They created it. But at the same time, depending on the contractor, you could say Lockheed Martin created a new plane or Boeing created a new plane. Well, which is it? Well, both. One was over and empowered the other to do it. God the Father created through the Son. They both were a part, the 
son being the agent of the creation. Not just the agent of creation. Notice what it says. And through whom we exist. We continue to exist now. God didn't create the universe and then sit back and has a really well-made clock. He just watches it. Every day, every second, you're upheld by the sustaining power of Christ. And yet, why did we go to like Theology 101 in the midst of food offered idol? Why is he talking about all this? Well, because knowledge of God always affects how you act and think, even down to food offered to idols. Because if they know these things, they can live as strong Christians, he will say. And some in Christian, you, Christians in Corinth use this knowledge to rightly feel justified that they could eat this meat with a clear conscience. And Paul agrees, and he's going to say you can't, but then he's going to say a few other things. But before we jump into that, let's reflect on what he's saying here. Because Paul is clearly saying that Jesus is Lord, meaning Master, and God is the source and purpose of all things. Does our life, does my life reflect that? You know, more and more there's the call of our society that you alone are the determiner of what's right and wrong. You know, for many Americans, this whole passage would be utterly ridiculous. Who cares where I get my meat? That's my choice. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what you say. I decide what's right for me, and if you don't like it, then you're lost. It's my life, my choices, none of your business. You don't owe anyone an explanation. You do you. Now, some of that, in fact, is true because people can be overly judgmental. And we read Romans 14. There are several times, don't pass judgment on others on these things. Yet the issue there, and in Jesus' words, do not judge, in Matthew 7, are dealing with our attitude. They're not saying it's wrong to go talk to someone about sin in their life. In fact, out of love, you should at times go talk to people if what they're doing is sinful and destroying their life. More than that, though, as Christians, we can never say, you do you. Stop. Full pause. End of sentence. We need to say, you were called, you were created, you're sustained by God. You do what he wants you to do. Now, there's multiple choices where he gives you freedom. You wanted to wear a purple top this morning. I don't think anyone has purple. I'm not picking anyone. Then great. You wear purple tops to your heart's content. You wanted to wear burnt orange. Well, you might be stupid, but wear the burnt orange to your heart's content. Whatever it may be, you can do your color choice. That's not what we're talking about. But on many issues, we need to say, no, you do what God wants you to do. True life and freedom comes actually when we deny ourselves and follow him. He's our Lord. He's our master. And he's the one who calls the shots, not me. But really the challenge of this is on these third level importance issues. Remember these Christian freedoms is that it can look different from culture to culture. Let me give a few examples. Take this idea of Jesus being Lord. The early Christians knew because Jesus is Lord, I cannot swear allegiance to anyone else. I cannot say Caesar is Lord. And many of them were killed because they would not give allegiance to Caesar. They would not say he is Lord. 
And I hope all of us agree and say, yes, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't give your allegiance to anyone but Christ. But yeah, we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Wait, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Is our allegiance to a flag or to God? Now, the thing is, in our culture, we realize when we say the pledge, there's conscientious objections that we don't mean by that total allegiance that you won't obey your God. We understand that. So in our culture, we can very clearly, I believe, though I have Christian friends who won't say the pledge, I believe we can say the Pledge of Allegiance because there's this understanding that is not saying, I'm going to obey the flag over God. But we can see each culture who reads that differently responds differently. One culture, you say, no, you'll take my head off. I'm not saying that. Oh, I can say the Pledge of Allegiance. No big deal. I have friends who are missionaries in Japan, still are, and their son grew up and was able to play Little League Baseball. And as the dad was going to the games, he started noticing that at the beginning of each game, all of the boys would bow. What's that about? So he went and talked to the coach and was saying, hey, well, why are they bowing before the game? And at least for this team and this coach, the coach was very clear, well, we do this to be respectful and honor and worship the gods. And the dad was clear, okay, so this is not just like a general respect, like, hey, beginning of the game, we bow to each other. No, no, we're, we're worshiping God. So the dad, the missionary dad, was very clear with his son. Look, Daniel, in the New Testament, we cannot bow to other gods. So you cannot bow at the baseball game. Don't care. For these people, this means worship as Christians. We will not bow before any other gods. And they talked about it. And so the son went off to his next game. And there something interesting happened but we'll save that for later. The point of all this, though, is that there are clear right and wrongs. We should clearly say Jesus is Lord, but how that works out may look slightly different in each society. In one culture, we'll die before we pledge allegiance. In another culture, we understand that differently, and we can say a pledge. One culture will bow in respect because that's a good thing to do, where in another, we won't bow because it's worship to a god. What all this is hopefully helping us see is that on these third-level issues of importance, we have to take into consideration other factors that have led Christians to act differently. That's why Romans 14, 5, and 6 says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, it's very important to realize that Paul did not say, well, these issues are unimportant. We have Christian freedom, so just do whatever you want. No, he said, be fully convinced in your own mind. Think it out. Reason. Come to an understanding why you fill in the blank. Think it's okay to play cards, go to the dance hall, drink alcohol, vote forever. Don't just go, eh, it's just me, it doesn't matter. I just, I'm going to judge myself. Be fully convinced. Yet he does say that two Christians are doing the exact opposite thing and both are pleasing God. Hopefully in your mind you have a category for that. that this Christian can do the exact opposite of what I think I should do and they're pleasing God. And you know what? I'm pleasing God too. Again, 
We're talking on third level issues. But whatever you do, the point is clear. We're made for God, so let's live for him. And so we need knowledge. We need wisdom and we need love in our decision making. And that's where Paul ends this chapter, verses 7 through 13, because greater than exerting knowledge is love. Because it says in verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled now though there's only one god what's going on is many of them know that in their head but they don't know that in their experience they don't know that in their life they worshiped in those pagan temples and to them it's hard to go this isn't real you know, I can eat a certain style of cinnamon toast. I can take a bite of a certain type of peach cobbler, and I am immediately on Lee Hall Street in my granny's kitchen. Hmm. Won't cry. And I'm there because what? Just the taste takes me there. And for some of you, there might be a smell. There might be just two lyrics. There might be a phrase, and you're immediately transported back. Maybe it's a wonderful time. Maybe it's with your granny. Maybe it's a horrible time. Things and people that you're with that you regret, but you hear the sounds, the smells, the taste, whatever it is, and you're there. And you can no longer go, ah, that's meaningless. It wasn't meaningless in the past, and it affects you. And that's probably what's going on with the Corinthians. They smell, they hear, they taste the meat, and they go, eh, yeah, it's hard for me to say this isn't really real. Two weeks ago, I was a pagan, and I was eating this as to Zeus. Still feels like I'm eating this to Zeus. And th they can't get over it. And so Paul, he describes their conscience as being weak, and thus they're defiled or ruined. We want to pause for a second. What is a conscience? Well, the conscience is the God-given good inner sense that things are right and wrong. It's a wonderful instrument God has given each person to live a life that honors God. And like a smoke detector, you should listen to it when it's blaring. However, our consciences are fallible. And thus we can't follow Jiminy Cricket and always let our conscience be our guide. God's word is our guide, and we have to realize that because we can have overly sensitive consciences that condemn us when we're not doing anything wrong, or we can have seared consciences where we're doing wrong things and we go, eh, there's nothing wrong with that. So God's word is our guide, but he's given us this instrument to go, eh, eh, this doesn't seem right. Ooh, I need to go check God's word because I'm being warned by my conscience that this is wrong. And we have to calibrate our conscience to the truth. However, here, some of these Corinthian Christians have not had their conscience fully calibrated to what they should think about meat sacrifice to idols. And their conscience is being defiled by the strong. Paul goes on, verse 8, and he uses knowledge. He's trying to help them. He says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But then verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So yes, the strong, those who realize that this is, this is just a false God, it's not real, they can do it, and there's these weak who think the idols are real, but the strong have to act 
in a way that they're not a stumbling block. And he gives an example in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to offer food, to eat food offered to idols? So imagine, this probably didn't happen, but we'll just go with this illustration. Sylvanus goes down to the temple, and in the, not in the temple worship center, they're clear that you shouldn't do that, but in the room next to the temple, he's enjoying a party. He's enjoying his Christian freedom, and Thomas, his fellow Christian, is walking by, and he goes, hey, come on in. Hey, this open party, come on in, Thomas, let's have some of this food. And Thomas goes, ooh, I can't eat that. That's, That's pagan food. And yet Thomas, without having his conscience calibrated, and that's the issue, is led by Sylvanus to come in and eat the food. And what does Thomas do? He does the very thing that his conscience is going, eh, I shouldn't do that. That is the issue. And yet, why does this happen? Well, because none of us likes to go against what our friends think. None of us likes to go, ah, Sylvanus, did you know that we shouldn't be eating that meat? Oh, come on, you're a stick in the mud. It's just some meat. Who cares? And yet, what Sylvanus should do is say, really? Why do you think that? Hey, let's go talk for a while. Let me explain to you. Let me calibrate your conscience why I can eat this meat. And at the end of the con- conversation, Sylvanus still doesn't convince Thomas and go, hey, Thomas, thank you for letting me know that. And then he's not going to invite Thomas to go eat meat with him. And he's not going to put it in front of his face. Hey, you know what I did last night? <laughs> no. He's going to use his freedom in a way that does not harm his brother. But Paul goes on, verse 11, if Thomas begins to do with his conscience what is wrong, what it tells him is wrong, then Paul says the weak Christian will be destroyed. This is the end of Romans 14. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. To go against your conscience is sin. Now, we need to be clear. The point is not that if your conscience says it's fine, that makes it okay. My conscience might say there's nothing wrong with murdering someone. It's still a murder. Your conscience can't make a wrong right, but your conscience can make a right wrong if you're willing to do it. If you and your brain are saying, in your conscience, this is something a Christian shouldn't do, and you're not convinced by God's word otherwise, and you do it, it is a sin. In this case, Thomas is saying, I shouldn't eat this, and yet he does, and so Thomas is sinning. Yet, isn't Paul kind of overstating the case here? Maybe a little hyperbole, destroyed? I mean, he's destroyed. I mean, he just ate a little meat. I mean, so he sinned against his conscience. What's the big deal? Come on. It's just a little sin anyways. Well, if you think sin's no big deal, look, all you got to do is make a profession of faith and then you're in heaven. Don't worry about the rest of your life. Well, then, yeah, this is way blown out of proportion. Yet, if sin is deadly serious, like the Son of God would have to come and give his life for it, and if, yes, you need to believe, but then there's warnings that you need to continue in the faith all the way to the end, then it's serious. If Paul will say, flip over one chapter to the end of chapter 9, Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be 
disqualified. The he apostle could disqualify himself. That's showing it's pretty serious. Or if you look, flip one more chapter over, chapter 10, verse 12, and it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, a serious fall, then yes, this is not an overstatement, but a serious warning that we should take sin deadly seriously. Sin has destroyed, sin is destroying, and sin will destroy. So be on your guard that you don't lead your brother or sister for whom Christ died into sin. And so back in chapter 8, verse 12, he says that we are thus sinning against our brothers and wounding their conscience. And when it is weak, we make we sin against Christ. Now that's a strong statement. We're not just sinning against them. We're sinning against Christ when we lead our brother or sister into sin. And not only do we get connected to Christ by faith, by faith he connects himself to us. Thus, if you're holding a grudge against another member of this church, you're holding a grudge against Christ. If you're bitter at people in the church, then you're bitter at Christ. If you're gossiping about people in the church, you're gossiping about Christ. Consider this in relation of you do you or no one can judge me. Now, often if you challenge a Christian on that, they say, well, of course, yes, when I say you do you, I mean in line with God's word. I'm just saying other people shouldn't rule me or affect my decisions. And yet Paul shows that, in fact, the brother or sister in front of you is Christ. You can't act as though you're living for God and then treat the people who are in front of you who are, says Christ, as they're nothing. To live for God is to care. It's to no longer say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you can't judge me. It's to say, I deeply care about what you think. I deeply care and am not going to do something to harm you spiritually. This Paul wraps up this section, verse 13, with a stunning conclusion, at least to Americans' ears, that if a certain food causes his brother or sister to stumble, he'll never eat it again. As strongly as possible in Greek, he states that I'll never do this again. He takes seriously Jesus' words that it's good not to cause a brother to stumble into sin. Thus, greater than exerting my knowledge is to love. Notice he didn't say, look, you're just wrong. I just got to tell you, you're wrong and I'm free to do this, so I don't care. I'm going to do it. Rather, though he knows they're wrong, in love he sacrifices his own desires. Now we need to be clear here. The issue is not, I don't like what you're doing, or it offends me that you're doing this. The issue is that you doing it is causing me to sin. So maybe I don't like the fact that you go to a dance hall, but unless you're like dragging me there and I'm going and it's causing me to sin, then I should not judge you and I should let you go to the dance hall. If you're not, it's not, I don't like what you're doing. The issue is your actions are leading me to sin. And we can apply that to the legion of Christian liberties. Thus, we have to say, look, clothing styles, schooling options, movies we watch, beverages you consume. There's so much freedom for each Christian to do between them and God what is right. If you come to know that those freedoms are 
harming another Christian, then you go, I can give it up. It's a freedom. I don't have to do it. So I'll give it up for you. I'll give it up for Christ. As well, Paul's not saying don't offend because remember all the way back to chapter 1, the gospel is a stumbling block. Yes, there are first level issues where we started. There are some things that we need to be fighters for purity. And if you stumble over it, I'm sorry. You will stumble over the gospel. Well, I have to. That is an issue where I fight for purity, not where I go, well, kumbaya. You don't like the gospel. Let's just hug each other. No, in the church, we have to seek the purity. And so these passages, this passage is hopefully helping us see that with these different levels of importance, we have to guard that we don't run to extremes. One extreme is that we're so focused on being peacemakers, but in fact, we're really peace fakers. We'll never stand up for these first level issues like the gospel because, oh, we want peace. But in our actions and words, maybe we're allowing sin. Maybe we're allowing heresy that's going to destroy the very church we're trying to keep peaceful. And if we do that, we end up becoming just like the world. We look no different. It becomes syncretic where our church really has like this veneer of Christianity, but we're just like everyone else because we want to put our arms around everyone. We all agree. Well, no, we don't. And there are things we must stand up for. But we don't like that. We want to be loved. We want to be welcomed. Everyone go, oh, they love everyone. Well, we do, but that love sometimes says, out of love, I won't let you teach something that's false. But back to the missionaries in Japan. So the boy goes back to the baseball game, and the dad's out there, and so when the son comes home, he goes, well, how'd it go? Oh, it's fine. So what'd you do when they bowed? Oh, I didn't bow, but my hat fell off. What do you do when your hat falls off? What was the son trying to do? Ride the fence. Oh, I'm not bowing. I'm picking up a hat. What do all his teammates think? Oh, he's bowing with the rest of us. We want, we all want to be accepted. Oh, no one wants to be. I'm the one. Everyone else is bowing. Why didn't you bow? But yet, we must be people who, for purity, fight for those issues. And so, We can go to that extreme, but we can go to the other extreme, and that is where we take a stand on everything. There's no issue too small that we won't fight for. We're purity seekers, and we end up becoming separatists. We don't become like the world because we're so far from the world that we're not in it. And so we have to maintain this tension that we're in the world, but not of it. And it's hard, and it's challenging. And so we need to have brothers and sisters who lovingly talk to us and go, eh, you're going too far. And they, they go, well, no. And, oh, maybe I wasn't going far enough or whatever the case may be. And so may we as Christians be firm on the essentials, those first level things, who Christ is, truths that we must affirm. And yet on these third levels, may God give us the wisdom and the grace to know I really don't know how they do that as a Christian. It's not making me sin, but I'm going to welcome them, Romans 14 says, because it's not a sin, and I'm going to love them because this is not essential to the gospel. May God give us that wisdom and grace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is very hard. We, We want everyone to be just like us, so we feel like we're living life perfectly, and yet 
the only one who lived perfectly was your son. Lord, may we be so confident of our righteousness in him that we are willing to say they act differently, but they are still honoring you. Lord, may we not be peace fakers and not standing up when we should be standing up, but may we not be hyper-judgmental and always attacking everything when we should be showing grace and freedom. Oh, Lord, we cannot do this on our own. Give us the humility to hear one another, hear your word, and be open to your spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.